one. So I've got a thought that I want to share with you this morning. And, and I must admit, some of you will have seen, um, you know, th this weekend's been an interesting weekend for me. I guess Easter's one of my favorite uh, weekends. <coughs> um, sorry, should have covered that. Wow, fail. Uh, Easter is one of my favorite weekends and, and there's lots of traditions that we have at Easter and a lot of those uh, traditions have been kind of turned upside down and, and changed. But um, yeah, and, and so I guess this weekend's just been a bit hard for me trying to process a lot of that. Um, I, I really enjoyed Good Friday coming together as a church, you know, and how many people tuned into that. Um, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, being able to rest. But every time I came to try and write a message for this morning, um, I, I kept going, God, what, are, what do you want to say? What, 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 new, what new spin can I put on Easter? And, and, and kind of that was the conviction moment for me because, you know, maybe it's a preacher thing. Uh, you know, maybe you feel this way too, I don't know. But, um, you know, every every year there's certain there's a certain pressure. In fact, every week there's a certain pressure, I guess, as a preacher to have something uh, for your people, something fresh, something new, something lifeful, something that's not repeated. Uh, and that's that that's challenging at any given time. But it's particularly challenging uh, around Easter and Christmas because you're expected to bring some. You know, we don't want the, the Christmas message we had last year. We don't want the Easter message that we had last year. Uh, we want something new, but actually the story of Easter doesn't change. Uh, and actually the story of Easter is amazing, uh, just as it is. We don't have to add anything to it. We don't have to draw anything out of it that's not already there. Uh, one of the things that I love about the Bible is it is, it is beautifully complex, uh, and yet at the same time, uh, beautifully simple. And, and, and so, you know, when we look at the Easter story, and we, and we can spend all this time trying to come up with, you know, some some new truth, some, some, some divine revelation. But actually, I believe that for, for us this morning, the best revelation we could get is the one that, that many of you would say you already know. It's the one that many of you uh, perhaps go, you know, maybe you've never heard it before, and this is the first time this morning. It is the greatest revelation, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God became man, that he stepped into our circumstances and that in the midst of our circumstances, he lived a perfect and blameless life. But chose to exchange his perfect, blameless life and to take my sin and your sin upon his shoulders, upon himself and be nailed to a cross as punishment for, for what we deserve. The, the Bible says the wages of sin uh, is death, but the gift from God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And and, and there, there is only one story. There is only one story. There's there's not a sequel. There's 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 not there's not Jesus came and died for our sins and then rose from the dead and now we get to do, you know, and, and now we get to get onto the real stuff. That is the real stuff. That that is the main point of everything. The the very point of Jesus coming and, and, and dying for us, rising from the dead, is so that we would return to him. You know, uh, John Bevere does a great message. He talks about um, the Israelites in the book of Exodus, you know, when they're delivered from Egypt and he brings them into the wilderness. And, and, and this whole thing about going to the promised land, but he said, this is verse, uh, this wasn't even in my notes this morning, but in Exodus, 
He says, I brought you to the wilderness to bring me to myself. The, the, the purpose of their deliverance was always for their closeness with, with him. It was always that they would be with him. Whether that was in the promised land, whether it was in the wilderness, God's goal was that we would be with him. And that's what makes God different from every other uh, religion that, that tries to portray a God. Is God is the, the Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus, God is the only God who in any kind of literature wants to be close with his people. All the other gods want to be high and lifted up. All the other gods want to lord it over people. But God, you know, the Bible says Jesus, who in his very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but took on the nature of a servant. Why? Because he wanted to be with us. The goal of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus was was closeness with Jesus. You know, we can make it about so many other things. We can make it about our healing. We can make it about our financial prosperity. We can make it about uh, all these different things. And, and, and Jesus works in wonderful ways in all of these sorts of things because the Bible says God is the one who can do more than we can think, ask, or imagine. But God also said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so actually to go, yes, and amen, I'll join you. I'll pray for you for your finances. I'll pray for you for your healing. I'll pray for you for your miracle. I'll pray for you for all the, you know, all those things and, and believe that God can and will do something about them. But the point is that if I have all of those things and don't have Jesus, it doesn't count for anything. The Bible says that when the one who has son has life, the one who has Jesus has life, and he is the purpose of it all. And so this morning, I don't want to bring some new revelation to the Easter story. I don't want to add something. I, I, just, I just want to talk about what it is. And, and that's Jesus who came, lived and died and rose again for you. And the Bible says that because he did that, we have eternal life. We can have. See, because the, the, the exchange of God was when he took our sin and our mess and our dirtiness upon himself, he instead gave us his righteousness because we could never measure up on our own. I want you to take a minute where you are. And I want you to think about the, the most good person that you can think of that's ever lived to walk the earth other than Jesus. I want you to think about the best person. You know, maybe it's Mother Teresa, uh, whoever that shining example of what a good person looks like. And, and, you know, whoever that person is, if we could sit down and we could talk with them, there's one thing that I would guarantee. They would be painfully aware of how imperfect they were. Mother Teresa served in Calcutta, did all sorts of wonderful things, changed the world in the way that she cared for the poor, in the way that she modeled it, in the way that other people now still look to her as an example. And yet in her writing, she talks about how painfully aware of the fact she was, that, that she was fallen, that she was broken, that she had things not all together. And, and, and you know what? The message of the gospel is this, even the most shining example of character has a shortfall. 
compared to God because that's how glorious God is. Even the best person we can think of falls short. The Bible says, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so often I've heard that used as a statement, you know, as a, as a whipping tool to, to, to punish people and to, and to condemn people and to shame people. But what Jesus is acknowledging is that, hey, here's, here's the best thing. Because if you were to put on a, if you were to take the top five people, the best people you know in the world, and you were to put them on a, on a scale of how good they are, you know, who's at the top, who's at, you know, and, and then go, okay, where do you fit on that scale? Are you in between them? Are you below them? Suddenly it's encouraging because actually what you can do is you can look and it goes, it doesn't matter. Even if I was the best person in the world, there is a gap for me. We all have a gap. And the only person that can bridge that gap is the person who sets the standard. God's standard is perfection. And so it's his responsibility to bridge that gap. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus. Jesus came to our side of the chasm. We sang about it this morning, how great the chasm that lay between us. But Jesus comes into our world, our circumstances, in order to, to build a bridge, if you like, into his world, his realm. And now we're taught that, that, that there is no separation between God and man. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus. Let, let me share this with you this morning. I've been reading from the book of John. And, and you know, you might, you might ask, what would cause God, Jesus, to want to pay that price for you and me? You know, the Bible talks about in, in Romans that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. It talks prior to that about how we might be prepared to die for, for someone who we particularly like, someone who's a particularly good person, but certainly not someone who, who we don't like. And yet it says, Jesus, while we were all still sinners, while we were rebelling against God. And this is what I want to share with you this morning. What would, what, what would motivate Jesus to do such a thing? And what would motivate us to pursue such a God? One of the things that I love about Jesus is in John chapter 20, we read all the different things that Jesus did when he rose from the dead. On that first day, uh, you know, the first thing that he does is he appears to Mary Magdalene. I, I love that. The first thing Jesus does is appears to, to a woman who in the culture of the time that would have been in, like so so Jesus is, is just already in the face of, 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 of culture to say I'm establishing something new here. Jesus goes on and it, it says he sends them back. Um, I don't actually know if it's in the book of John. Uh, but it says he, he sent Mary to or the angels sent Mary it must be in the book of Luke because the angels sent Mary back to the disciples and it says go to the disciples even Peter. And I love that it's written to say even Peter, because it's like trying to highlight that Jesus has come even for the Peter just two days before had denied him three times. And so in the in the context of the narrative right now, you know, I want you to think what would hurt you more as a person, 
if someone who doesn't like you or someone you don't like offends you or someone who's close to you offends you, someone who's close to you denies you, someone who's close to you uh, betrays you. And, and so Peter in the narrative is, 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 I guess, at that time, the example of this friend. See, the people that we love can often hurt us the most. The people that love us can hurt us the most. And so what Jesus is saying in this moment, what the angel is saying when they say to, to the woman, go, excuse me, go to the disciples, even Peter, showing that such is the power of the resurrection. Such is the power of Jesus. Such is the power of love. That even Peter, that even the strongest betrayal, that even the closest betrayal is not unforgivable anymore. Not because of Peter, not because of you and me, but because of Jesus. And I want to read this because uh, there's, there's, a, there's a happening. So, so Jesus appears to Mary and then they go and, and tell them. Let's just read from uh, John chapter 20, verse 1. <clears throat> Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. <coughs> Sorry. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they had taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they had put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. Now, I want to, I want to look at this in an interesting way. Uh, because one of my favorite verses, when you look at the Gospel of John, the book of John, it seems to be written in this kind of competitive style between Peter and John. There's always a comparison between what Peter did and what John did. Um, and it's always written from a bit of a bias because it's written by John. And so John's always going to paint himself in a good light, right? Like you, you're not going to write a book about yourself in, in, a, in, a, in a deprecating way. And, and so what happens is, is John constantly, you know, and we see all the time, the disciple that Jesus loved. John's writing about it all the time. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's constantly talking about how Peter's falling short. Peter's done this whole denial thing. Peter was going to walk on the water and then he fell in and Peter was going to do this. And it just, it's kind of this competitive thing going on. And I love this verse. Uh, here in, in verse let's read verse three and four Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb they were both running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first I just <laughs> I just love it because it's like when you read it it's like here's John going yeah we ran to the tomb but I beat him we ran to the tomb, but I beat him and, and, and you go why I saw a great meme on Facebook a wee while ago and it's Peter and John standing at the tomb. And John says, I beat you. And Peter's like, well, who's going to know? And John, under his breath, whispers, everyone will know. 
everyone will know. And, and then he writes it in his book. And so there's this there's this kind of competitive thing. But you go, but but the the point is this though. This is what I sort of realized as I was praying. John wasn't in a competition. What John was often trying to do in his gospel was highlight the fact that it wasn't a competition, that it wasn't about us boasting about love, that it wasn't about competing for love. It was about understanding that God loved us. Later on, uh, later on in 1 John chapter 4, uh, this, John would write, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so my question is this, if John spent his whole time writing the book about how it's not about being competitive. Why then did he feel the need in John chapter 20, verse four to say, they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, because it's, it's very out of character for John. It's extremely out of character for him to, to go, I won, I did better, nanny nanny boo boo. Um, <clears throat> and so what's he, what's he doing? I was looking at this and I was reading over it. And, and I found this fascinating thing uh, in scripture just in the last couple of days. And I want to share it with you as I was reading my, um, the, this, this version is the Passion Translation of the Bible. And it's, a, it's got a study Bible aspect to it. And it's, it's just wonderful in the way that it unpacks things. But I want to tell you a story. About two, three years ago, I don't even know if it would have been that. Uh, I went to the shooting range with Oliver Powell, my brother-in-law, who's watching this morning. Uh, Ollie was in the Air Force uh, and has several uh, legal, legally owned firearms. Um, I often tell him that he's going to be my defense strategy for when Taya's a teenager. It's not, don't worry about my dad, worry about my uncle. He's, he's got the armor, <laughs> he used to have the key to the armory of the Air Force, not anymore. Uh, but we went to the shooting range one day. And on this particular day, uh we were uh yeah we were shooting targets and there was someone else there and, and he had this new gun that neither of us had tried before and he said oh well why don't you why don't you have a go with it and so he supervised this and did all the legal stuff there and and, and the highlight of that day for me was that i was a better shot i got more shots in the middle of the target that than oliver did and and i i tell that story all the time i tell that story regularly uh, and the reason that I tell that story regularly is going to become clear to you in a moment and also help us to understand why John told his story. Uh, I want you to turn to the next chapter over, John chapter 21. So this is the, this is the second later that Jesus appears to his disciples. Uh, John chapter 21, uh, he makes them breakfast. Look at this, verse, verse one. Later, Jesus appeared to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Uh, verse three, Simon said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped it for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. 
The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and some bread. I'll stop there. Again, I love the nature of Jesus, <coughs> who's just been abandoned. You know, only John was at his crucifixion of all his disciples. The rest of them are, uh, are afraid, hiding, failing to turn up. You know, uh, John chapter 20, verse 19, it says the disciples were locked in their homes. Feels a little familiar, except they didn't have Netflix and social media and cell phones and all those sorts of things. But they were locked in their homes because they were fearful. And so here's Jesus, who spent his whole life telling them, don't be afraid. I, I'm I'm greater. I'm going to come back. It's going to be okay. Trust me. All these sorts of things. And they're hiding. And Jesus' response to those people is, let me cook you breakfast. It just it just gets me. It just I, I love how Jesus' nature is not like my nature. Because if Jesus' nature was like my nature, we would all be doomed. If Jesus' nature was like your nature, we would all be doomed. But Jesus has his own nature. But I, I want my the verse that I read in this is... John chapter 21, verse 7. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. Now, it's this verse that I want to focus on, which seems like a not important verse until this week that I was reading. Uh, this part where it says, He put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. Different translations struggle to translate this in different ways. Because if you actually go back to the Greek, it says, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord put on his tunic, for he was naked, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. Now, I've been on a few fishing trips. And at no point, at no time, was one of the prerequisites for any of them that anyone had to take their clothes off. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of one person who I've been fishing with that probably would love the opportunity. But... It never happened, and it wouldn't need to happen. And so, you know, the literal Greek says, he puts his tunic on for he was naked. And I'm like, what? And so different people have tried to uh, translate it different ways. They've tried to say, oh, well, you know, no, he was dressed for work. He was doing all these sorts of things. And then I want to hi highlight what I read in this. This is the Passion Translation of the Bible. I want to read from verse 21, the same thing again. Later, Jesus appeared once again to a group of his disciples by Lake Galilee. It happened one day while Peter, Thomas, the twin, Nathaniel, and Jacob and John, the, the two other disciples, were all together. Peter told them, I'm going fishing. And they all replied, we'll go with you. So they went out and fished through the night, but caught nothing. Then at dawn, Jesus was standing there on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was him. He called out to them saying, hey guys, did you catch any fish? Not a thing, they replied. Jesus shouted to them, throw your net on the starboard side and you'll catch some. And so they did as he said, and they caught so many fish they couldn't even pull in the net. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him. And because he was athletic, he dove right into the lake to go to Jesus. So, so hang on, let me read that verse again. When Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him, and because he was athletic, he dove right into the lake 
to go to Jesus. Let me read you the footnote here. John chapter 21, verse 7. It was John, the one who Jesus loved, that recognized the voice of Jesus. Perhaps it was Peter's discouragement that prevented him from recognizing the voice of the master. Peter's name was Simon, which also means he who hears. Our hearing his voice is hindered when we are confused and filled with doubts. Watch this. As translated, so this is the bit about, um, and because he was athletic. As translated from the Aramaic, the Greek is literally because he was naked. This is very strange, and most expositors make quite a case that this was not the case. In spite of the Greek saying he was indeed naked. The problem is solved by the Aramaic, which says, because Peter was athletic, he dove into the water. There is no mention of being naked in the Aramaic. So what we learn here is that Peter was athletic. You know the reason that I kept telling the story about beating Ollie at the, at the shooting range? Because I don't own a gun. Ollie owns all the guns. Ollie trains, or did train, to shoot weapons at work regularly. Uh, it's his job. It's his specialty. And I beat him. And I shouldn't have beat him. John chapter 21 tells us that Peter was athletic. John chapter 20 tells us that, uh, sorry, John chapter 21 tells us that Peter was athletic. John chapter 20 tells us that John beat Peter to the tomb. John wasn't athletic. John beat Peter to the tomb because love is a powerful motivator. Love does something incredible to the human body, to the human mind, and to the human spirit. It, it, it increases our capacity. It increases our ability. It takes us further, longer, higher, wider, above what we think we're physically capable of. And, and the reason I know this is when I was 18 years old, I used to drive 12 hours through the night to, to, to go and see my, my, at that time, girlfriend, now wife, in Invercargill. Love makes you do crazy things. Love sustains you. Love does all that love is, is such a powerful force. You know, here's how we know. This is verse where Paul says, Oh, you're focused on completely the wrong thing here right now, but it's it's cool. Um <laughs> uh, we, you know, anyway, I've lost my trade of thought now, just thinking about beating you again. The the Paul tells us in Corinthians 13, that's the story about love. And he says, you know, if I can speak in the tongues of seven men and I can do this and I can prophesy and I can do this, but I have not love, then I am nothing. He says this again, if I have not love, I am nothing. And he finishes the verse by saying, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So we know, based on what the Bible says, how powerful faith is. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Bible says that, that by faith, we overcome. The Bible says, you know, all these things about by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So, so it elevates faith to this important place. But, but Paul says the greatest is love. 
Paul says that love is even greater than, than faith. The next one we've got is hope. We know the power of hope. You know, there, there was a, um, I apologize if you don't like morbid stories, but I'm just telling the story. I'm not condoning the story. Um, there was a story about a man many years ago who did a test about hope. Uh, it wasn't actually a test about hope, but hope was the thing he discovered with, with wild rats. And one of the things that he did was he put them in water and found that after a couple of minutes that, that they drowned. But then he increased the experiment. And what he would do is he would put these rats in the water. And after a couple of minutes, when he could see them getting tired, he would lift them out and he would dry them off and he'd give them enough time to sort of recover their breath. And then he would put them back into the same situation, which is totally barbaric and I don't condone it at all. And what he, but what he found was that those rats that he put back into that situation swam for several hours and in some cases several days why because hope they knew that the situation they were in wasn't hopeless they knew there was someone who was capable of redeeming them so so the power of hope took them from from, from a couple of minutes to a couple of days of sustenance and paul says that love is greater than hope so so if faith and hope are this powerful as we've seen and as we've demonstrated, how much more powerful is love? Love gives someone who's not athletic in his excitement the ability to pursue, to run after, to outrun the athletic, to outrun the one who was more physically capable. <clears throat> in the same way, it was Jesus' love for us. Remember my starting question. What would compel a person? What would compel Jesus to lay down his life for us? It was love. What would sustain Jesus in that moment? It was love. I shared about it in my spoken word on Friday. It was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. He could have got off that cross at any time. What held him was love and what resurrected him was the power of god's love song of solomon chapter 8 verse 6 says place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm for love is as strong as death it's jealousy as unyielding as the grave it burns like a blazing fire the fiercest of a mighty flame Many mighty waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all the wealth of his house for love, his offer would be utterly scorned. Love is, this most, is the most powerful force. But we have to remember and we have to realize that it's his love, not our love. How we define love has become such a massive thing. You know, love is one of the most thrown around words of our time. I love chocolate. I love Lego. I, I love PlayStation. I love the weather. I love, I love my wife. I love, you know, it gets thrown around all these different times. And, and, and some of them are from deep, deep meanings and some of them are incredibly shallow. Because some of them say, I love my car. And then as soon as a better one comes along, I trade it in. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I, I won't labor on to that. But 
you know, uh, I've, I've got a wedding. I don't know quite when at the moment because of everything that's happening, but I've, I've got a wedding coming up. And when I sat with this couple and I, and I met with them and chatted with them, I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I was chatting to them about was just, you know, I, I love getting to know their story. And one of the things that the, the soon-to-be groom said to me in our discussion and in our interview process was, uh, I, I can't tell my wife or my, my girlfriend, my fiance, that I, that I love her. I've, I've, never, I've never told her. Now, they live together, own a house together. Uh, you know, do everything together. You you can blatantly see when you're with them that there's a deep love between them. And he said to me, I, I can say I love my dog. I can say I love my car. I can say I love my wall, you know, but I just really struggle to, he's like, I do. I, I, I do, you know, <laughs> like trying to dance around it. I, I, I just, I struggle to say it. Now you might hear that story and, and and go, oh, well, you know, harden up, grow up, rise up. You should tell your wife you love her every day. You should do all these sorts of things. And, and you know, my hope is that one day he gets to that place that, that he, he can. And, you know, we've talked all about that. Then. Um, but actually, I don't, I don't see it as a negative thing. I see it as such a value for the word love, such a value for the power and the authenticity of love. Because he understands that the love... I have for this woman is different to the love I have for my dog. It's different to the love that I have for, for my car. It's different to the love that I have for my, for my hobbies and interests and, and all these sorts of things. And, and so in, within this, there's this, it, it, it's not so much a fear. It's almost a reverence for the word love. And, and if I'm going to say I love her, I better be able to measure up. I better be able to do that. I better be able to, 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 to front it up. Which brings us to the story at the end of the book of John. Because Peter spends his whole life going, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you more than these people. I love you more than all of these other ones. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then he denies it three times. John, in, his, in this gospel, you have, I don't think you see a single time where John ever says the disciple who loved Jesus. He always calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Because he's living out of a different understanding. That my love doesn't need to be said. It needs to be actioned. And so John, although we never see him say, Jesus, I love you. We see him as the only disciple that stands at the foot of the cross when he's crucified while everyone else is hiding. We see John as the disciple who, when he hears that he's risen, outruns an athlete to get to the tomb. We see all these different things. And, and then there's this reconciliation where Jesus deals with this at the end with Peter. And I've, I've heard several sermons preached on I don't want to go into a big exegesis. But after they had breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you burn with love for me? Do you love me more than these? And three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and Three times Peter responds. Because Jesus, Peter had denied him three times, Jesus restores him three times to show him. But, you know, if you go through, there's, there's, a, there's a great Greek word study you can do there because the words for love are different. 
the word that Jesus says, do you love me, is agape. It's unconditional love. It's the love that says no matter what, no matter what else comes along, no matter what circumstance, what trial, what, whatever stands in my way, I will worship you. I will follow you. And so this is the kind of love that Peter professed to have. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Jesus and Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. But the word he uses is different because it's more of a friendship love. It's more of a business love. It's more of a transaction that goes, I love you because there's a promise and a covenant and it's mutually beneficial. But if it ceases to be beneficial, and so what, what, what Peter is realizing in this moment is all of my bravado, all of my professing to love didn't have an action behind it. Whereas John, who we never hear say it, had always acted it out. You know, I would rather my wife show me love than say love and show nothing. You know, you, I, she could say she loves me every day, but I want to know it. Jesus wanted us to know his love so much that he demonstrated it. We looked at that verse before. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see in this moment that Jesus did not just want to speak his love. He wanted it to have an action. And in return, he does not want us just to speak our love. He wants our love to have an action. Church, I want to encourage you in closing this morning with this thought. Don't be a person who acknowledges Jesus with your words every day, but never love him with your life. Let's take let's take heaven and hell out of the equation. Let, let's take the consequences of, of I don't even want to talk about that. I want to talk about you for a minute. If you love Jesus with your words and not your action, with your mouth but not your heart, every time you come to a difficult situation, you're Peter out. Every time you come to a difficult situation, it will become, because they're only words. And therefore, the moment louder words or stronger words come along, it's all over. But, if it's an action and a heart and in, and, in, and, in, and in spirit, then whatever may come, whatever may, may befall you, positive or negative, nothing will ever be too good to say that you don't need Jesus. Nothing will ever be so bad that you can't get through with Jesus. And this was the story of John. John stood at the foot of the cross when no one else stood there. Why? Because he knew that his God loved him. And he knew that even if he was arrested, even if he was put to death, God was bigger still. And Jesus demonstrated in this moment, on the day that we celebrate today, Resurrection Sunday, that he was bigger than life. He was bigger than death. That the, the, the time that we have here is just a blip on the radar of eternity. And so I want to encourage you. Love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Know that you will fall short at times. So you cannot be, you know, 
you cannot be perfect in your love to God. Peter learned that. But know this. God is always perfect in his love for you. And let his perfect love for you be the motivation that causes you to outrun athletes, that causes you to outlove other husbands and wives, that causes you to have the best marriage, the best family, the best employees, the best employers, the best business, the best finances. Yeah, all, let all of it come out of love because Paul said that if I have all of these things but do not have love, then I have nothing. Let me pray for you. God, I want to thank you for your love. Lord, I pray for every heart this morning that is watching this live stream. Lord, whether they've known you for many years, just a few years, or whether today is the first time that they're hearing about you truly. God, I thank you that you love them. And Lord, I pray that they would know your love. And Lord, I pray that your love would strip off every fear, every shame, and every guilt of their life. Lord, I pray that right now they would feel the weight of condemnation lift off, you, off them. I just, I just sense for some of you right now that you're sitting in this moment, and it's, it is, it's like God is taking a weight off your shoulders that you've carried for such a long time. Maybe it's a weight of of not feeling good enough. Maybe it's a way of feeling like you constantly have to measure up. And I just see God taking that taking that way. Maybe it's a fear. I just see God lifting it. And Lord, I pray that you would replace it with love. Lord, I pray that we would know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That we would know that you came, that we may have life and life to its fullness. And Jesus, that, that your love would motivate us to love like never before. Jesus, to love you like we never have before. Jesus, to love our families like we never have before. Jesus, to love our community like we never have before. God, we thank you that love is a force stronger than death. And Jesus, we thank you that it's your love and your hope and your grace that sustains us. And so, Jesus, again, we pray, even in this season, even in, the, in this time of uncertainty, Lord, we know there is nothing that can befall your people that you cannot endure, endure and bring us through. And so, God, we just thank you. And we declare we love you, Lord. We love you, God. Amen.